This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm Jackie Pack, your host. Today on the podcast, I have two guests, Janice and Dan. I'm going to read their bios so that you can be impressed by both of them before we get into talking. So Janice Caudill is a family psychologist in private practice in McKinney, Texas. She is a certified sex addiction therapist supervisor, a certified clinical partner specialist supervisor, a certified partner recovery therapist and intimacy anorexia therapist, somatic experiencing practitioner and certified daring way facilitator. She utilizes EMDR and strength-based approaches in her work. Janice treats sex addiction and related betrayal trauma. She specializes in helping partners and couples heal in the wake of intimate deception. She offers individual, couple, and group traditional outpatient therapy, as well as intensives for partner trauma and couples seeking to rebuild trust after betrayal. She also treats intimacy anorexia. Dr. Cottle is the clinical director of McKinney Counseling and Recovery, as well as intensive recovery coaching. She is a founding board member and current vice president of the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. She is also the author and co-author of workbooks, Preparing Partner and Recovery Addicts for a Professionally Guided Full Disclosure. She can be reached at drjanicecaudill.com, and the website for her workbooks are disclosurehope.com. So that's Janice. Let's talk about Dan now. So Dan Drake is the founder and clinical director of Banyan Therapy Group in Los Angeles, California. He is a certified sex addiction therapist supervisor, a certified clinical partner specialist supervisor, and he is EMDR trained. He has received two master's degree from Fuller Theological Seminary in marital and family therapy and in theology. Dan uses his training and specializations to treat sex addicts, their partners, and families in his group practice. In addition to his clinical background, he has taught and spoken domestically and internationally. His passion is to help his clients restore relational, mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual wholeness to their lives. His website is Banyan, B-A-N-Y-A-N, BanyanTherapy.com. So welcome, Dan and Janice. Thanks, Jackie, for having us on. Yeah, I I saw Dan a couple weeks ago. We were at the um, ITAP Symposium in Arizona, got to talk with him and sit in on your panel discussion about disclosure. And Janice, you weren't able to make it, but I saw some of your recording stuff and that was there in the panel. And I'm glad to talk to you today. Good morning. So let's talk a little bit because you guys just recently had your workbook on disclosure published, right? Correct. So talk to me a little bit about how that project came about and what made you want to write a workbook on disclosure. Janice, you want to take this one? Are you point? Uh, you want me to do it? Yeah. Why don't you start out and I'll join in? <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I just want to say, Jackie, thank you so much for having us on. It's a real honor to be here. Also, I know Hope Ray did an amazing podcast with you, you know, a, a number of weeks back. So mm-hmm. I, we don't need to reinvent the wheel with some of these things. I think she said some amazing things about disclosure. So I just wanted to say that. Um, if anyone hasn't heard that podcast, go check that one out. Yeah, most of us see that's all get along, right? We all respect. We all get, we get along. We're there's, not there's... really competitive with each other. <laughs> sometimes, but, but I think we're, we're a good group of people sometimes too. Yes. I, how did this come about? So, so Janice, uh, me and another colleague, we were working on another project 
and one of the chapters was on disclosure. And so uh, Janice had, had, we said, oh, let's, let's see what kind of, what resources we have already for disclosure and kind of put them out on a table. And so we put them out on a table. Mind you, this was about, what, two or three years ago? Yeah. Um, yeah, and and so we put them out on a table, and we said, "Oh, well, we got a lot here. Let's. This might be enough for a little workbook." So, and here we are, a few years later, and what what started as a little workbook turned into a massive undertaking of trying to work through the how do clients prepare for the full disclosure process. Um, you know, we thought it would be a little thing, but then we kept adding things along the way and thought, oh, there's this missing piece or this thing to add. So ultimately, it just became this massive project to try and, you know, walk walk through the whole the whole process. So that's where we started. And it was, I'll say from my perspective, it was, you know, the, the disclosure process is so nuanced and every single couple approaches this differently. And what was great about working with Janice on this was we, we do things differently too in our practices around disclosure. So we had to figure out a common language for the two of us. You know, what was our approach going to be or how do we at least ha- start facilitating these conversations about disclosure? Mm-hmm. So ultimately what we have isn't the answer. It was more of a way to help facilitate couples ha- coming to their own answer for, for how this disclosure is going to look. So that's kind of our, our journey with this. And that's was a really rich time, difficult at times to, to do, but it was really rewarding. Yeah, I would, I would imagine that would be an interesting perspective as two therapists kind of come together with their own way of doing things and trying to put it together in something that benefits the clients. And I will add that, you know, we try to design the workbook. So if only one party is using them, there's, they're useful, but ultimately they're really, I think work best when, when both parties, both addict and partner are using them. And there's a bit of a parallel process, you know, for Dan and I, in creating the workbooks because we had some, some different things that we do slightly differently or the timing was different. And it really required us to like, what are the implications of this? If you do it this way, what resources did the partner need to be made aware of? And I don't think we really quite realized it at the time, but I think our process of working together is a bit of a parallel process for kind of how the partner and addict may work together to get a much more you know, collegial type disclosure process. As Dan, as I read some of Dan's stuff, I realized, oh, I've got to go add this for the partner. As mm-hmm. he saw some of the stuff that I was preparing the partner for, he realized that he needed to add that in the, the addict workbook so that there was some understanding kind of along the way. So it turned out to be um, much more of a parallel process in that than, than I think either of us had intended. But I'm, in, in hindsight, I'm really glad because I think it gave us a lot more awareness of what it would be like to be sitting in either of the client's shoes um, and what pieces of that really needed to dovetail in each of the workbooks so that they're actually working together. So in that process, did you find that there were maybe some common misperceptions or some common things that maybe got missed or skipped over? Do you mean in that we've seen our, our clients or uh, some common things that get skipped over for, for our process and what we, we, we realized we missed? Yeah, either, you know, that, that maybe therapists miss or hadn't maybe considered or just some misperceptions that couples have about the disclosure process. Well, we included like the, the first part of the workbook is just basically um, an educational description of what disclosures generally are and what they can be. 
And so for that, we include in that section of it kind of the, the misconceptions that we see in each party, what misconceptions the partners have about, you know, the attic process and preparation and vice versa. And for example, one of the things that, that we included, that I included for the partners is the awareness of like how long it can actually take to get a, a, a written disclosure on paper if you're doing it from an outpatient therapy process. The things that can interfere, which my, in my experience, it's usually like stuff that's going on between the coupleship sort of myth with partners that it's, you know, if he's not going to lie, why didn't you just sit down and you should be able to write that in one setting. So the, the practical awarenesses and then the like informing them of that the process is just is more than just getting it on paper, that the editing process can take quite a while. And that's some of where the really great growth is in terms of breaking through denial and cognitive distortion. So pieces about, for me, on my end, having the partner really aware of what the process is like on the other end. For you, Dan, what comes to mind? Well, I think it was, it's helpful to look at what, what are the things that I hear commonly. And just so anyone listening knows, I mean, there are the two workbooks. Um, Janice took lead on the, the partner prep workbook, and then I was preparing, um, took lead on the, the, the addict or the disclosing parties workbook. You know, I, th- I think a common thing that I hear a lot from disclosing uh, those that are going to be looking at a full disclosure process from the disclosing side is this common belief or misconception that if I if I tell my my partner everything, going to just destroy the relationship. That it's the truth that's going to destroy the relationship, mm-hmm. and that makes sense on one level, especially if you look at uh, a lot of core beliefs that addicts have about you know being bad. I'm I'm bad. I'm defective. I'm unlovable. I'm not good enough. Um, which leads to these assumptions: if people knew all of me, they would they would leave me. And what we're asking in a in a disclosure is to say, <laughs> here's all of me. The, the dark stuff that you didn't want to share with anybody that you were going to take to the grave. And now we're saying, we're actually saying that this is what's going to heal your relationship. So to have some sort of faith that that's actually the truth, that, you know, once I share the truth, that's what's going to heal the relationship, not kill it. But that's over and over again, what we've seen is, you know, it's, you can't rebuild a, a, a house without a new foundation um, if the whole old foundation comes crumbling down. So the foundation that we're trying to build is from truth. And, over and over again, I've heard from, hear from partners, I can handle the truth. What I can't handle are continued lies or deceptions or gaslighting. That's what, mm-hmm. that's what I can't handle. And so that's what we found through this. And I, I wanted to, to make sure that that was really clear, that I get where the belief and the misconception comes from a lot of times from negative core beliefs. Yet what I found will ultimately undermine or kill a relationship isn't the truth. It's the continued lies. So I found, you know, Partners can handle a lot of information. You know, we can't predict what's going to happen with a disclosure, but again, it's it's not usually the information. It's not the truth that generally ends things. It's it's the it's the uh, emotional abuse or gaslighting or um, all those other patterns. So that was one thing. There's another thing that that really struck me too that we talk about that that wait time. And if mm-hmm. I'm preparing the disclosing party, the wait time I've found. Uh, it can take, you know, in best case scenarios, I might do multiple revisions of, of the disclosure document that we're going to be creating, which maybe 10, 10 revisions or more. But it was helpful in this, this survey that Janice was uh, a big part of that AppSats did about the partner distress leading up to disclosure from the amount of distress that partners have from a scale of, was it zero to 10 or one to 10, Janice? Um, it was one to 10. 
one to 10. So one being no distress, you know, no distress to 10, which is the worst thing you could imagine. That discovery for, for the partners of the survey said that discovery, the distress level was 9.6 on a scale of one to 10. Mm-hmm. That high, obviously, is so distressing. So, mm-hmm. you know, completely catastrophic and then the the we think at least in my my brain i would think okay disclosure disclosure is going to be really high up there but what actually we found was that the wait time between discovery and disclosure was a 9.2 level of distress for partners the disclosure itself was a 7.7 that they they said so the disclosure itself was less distressing than that wait time so mm-hmm. for anyone listening out there i get that it's hard to to commit to this process, but the more you drag your feet, the more pain and potential trauma you put your partner through. So it's just so important to say that, you know, you want to do this right, but also we want to get this done as quickly as we we can in a safe way. So that was something that I I thought was really important too. So when you're working with addicts who are preparing for disclosure, do you try to give them like this? I mean, it's kind of hard to give a timeframe, but do you say like between this many months and this many months, we need to be giving that to partners? Yeah, I try. I mean, again, every situation's different, different, right. but I've just learned the hard way. I've become more of a coach in the process. So I actually found I tend to set my disclosure date more for, I kind of work backwards. I set a date maybe two months from now for a disclosure. We set the date and then, then I work backwards with, with deadlines. So then I need, I need a first round of, of a disclosure document by this date. I need these things. So I'll, I'll make it really more practical that way. Um, and then that gives, well, that gives me a chance to, if, if the person has, is having difficulty meeting those deadlines, then we have a different conversation. I can, you know, I try to build in some time that we can, we can play with, but uh, you know, a little bit of grace period, but that helps me work backwards. Cause I've just found if you, if I didn't do that, I, it's like week after week, I'm saying, okay, what, what work have you done in the disclosure? And it's like, well, I've been thinking about it. I pulled out the you know resources you gave me and, you know, I did a little work, but then and it comes week after week after week and I don't have much leverage to, mm-hmm. to work with. So I just think most of us respond to deadlines. So I, that helps me and that's helped me in kind of making this do it right, but then also do it as quickly as we can. Right. Well, and yeah, I will say that that's, that's one area where kind of being exposed to the way that Dan does his process that I'm actually changing. Because I, I started out like solo in private practice in, in a city that really didn't have a recovery community. So I sort of evolved having to do a little bit of it all. And I also um, at times navigate the addicts preparation. But the the piece that, that Dan does in terms of kind of making part of that process an outside of session kind of thing and, and sort of as much as a lawyer kind of might mm-hmm. do stuff out of session I really see the benefits of doing it in that way. So you can still do the the sort of the therapy that needs to happen in the session, but it picks up the pace significantly of working on uh, and getting the the disclosure document done. And that's one of the ways my practice is, is evolving by being exposed to like my own workbook and like informing partners that, yeah, there's another option here as well. Um, it is a really nice additional uh, way of working that's sort of different from the way as therapists we typically do, but I think it really speeds up the process. Yeah. Closure. Okay. So I had one question and listening to you talk, I now have another one, but let me ask you the first one first. So Dan kind of talked about 
maybe some of the prep work and what he does preparing the addict for disclosure. Janice, what would you add in terms of prepping partners? Well, for me, there, there's sort of two large categories for prepping partners. There's the prepping partners for the scope, somehow what the information might be. Because quite often in, in the surveys that Dan and I created for this, that there's a theme that came out that partners often felt blindsided because in, in the disclosure itself, because they, they really didn't have enough knowledge about how big the scope of sexually acting out could be. So there's some of that that's sort of just general preparation, but there's preparation for what we call the content or the facts of the disclosure. So there, we have several exercises sort of designed to really have the partner assess what the needs are in terms of the specificity and the categories of information that she would want and the types of situation and types of details that she wouldn't. So that is a big part of the process in beginning to create and design the structure. And so far, what I found with other, um, when I've done disclosures with, with other uh, colleagues who have, are prepping the attic, they find that really, really helpful to have a, a blueprint of what the partner's needs are. And then we have a section that really prepares her for uh, what type of uh, independent questions that she might create like might want create and want to have answered on her own. Questions that can be pasted, cut and pasted directly into the disclosure document after the timeline um, so that she really knows that she gets, she's getting her needs met. There's some process, there's process in there for how to vet the questions. Uh, it's a bit of a flow chart process of really understanding what need is driving the question. And when they figure out what the need is, quite often, they, the, you know, it's possible that the way the uh, question's phrased might change. If it's really about a lie, they ask about the lie rather than a lot of intimate details mm -hmm. particular event. It prepares them for the coping. How, how are they going to cope? They have a coping plan for each question in terms of that they get the worst possible answer versus the best possible answer. There's a coping plan for if it turns out not to be true, how you actually let go of that fear. So that's part of the content process. But what we've also, I think, is really important in my experience in partners is that, that often what causes the greatest damage is not information that's shared during, the, during a disclosure, even if it's full and complete, and it's, it's quite difficult but it's the way that the information is shared. So there's a part of the addict's preparation is if shame comes up, how is he gonna handle it? And so we prepare her for what we call the behavioral truth mm -hmm. disclosure. And then part of the preparation for herself is how is she gonna handle the truth? Because it's, that's a 7.7 .7 earthquake is, is, a, you know, is, a, is a major. Significant, yeah. Well, talk about more about that behavioral truth. Um, well, you know, in terms of the partner in preparing for it, it's, you know, I've, I've 10 years as a somatic kind of psychotherapist, I've built in a lot of kind of tools for regulation. So part of her preparation is if the information is really, really difficult, that she's already practiced how she's going to stabilize herself emotionally how does she prepare herself emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, so that she comes through, you know, the, the storm of the disclosure in a much better place than she might otherwise? Mm -hmm. 
I think maybe Dan, you might might be better for you to speak to the behavioral kind of truth for the addict. So there's two main things with the with the disclosure, right? There's the content. So you know if there's different ways of doing this, but essentially the the whole thing, what is a disclosure, is a transfer of information. It's it's sharing the the truth after betrayal. Um, what are we dealing with? So usually how how we do it is through a document. So you create a document. That's the content. So it, in that document can look a lot of different ways. Different clinicians do it differently, um, facilitate it differently. But I also like to include partner questions on there if if um, if he or she has questions that they want included especially if you're adding to a polygraph, that can be helpful. But um, anyway, so that's the content. The behavioral truth from the disclosing party is, am I getting defensive? Am I, if I collapse into shame, do I tend to take a victim stance and need to be pulled, pull my partner in to rescue me? Do I tend to shut down? Do I tend to withdraw or retreat? So those things we're going to try and work on before the disclosure to to really try to, to hold truth. And, and And I actually have clients... Uh, and even in their posture, how they're sitting, you know, I, it's natural to want to close up, you know, protect yourself because I'm sharing this information. I don't know what my partner is going to do with it, but really try to take an open posture, open stance. And if the behavioral truth, if he goes, uh, he or she, if the, the disclosing party goes into shame, can I catch myself going into shame and redirect and, and really try to, to hold more space for my partner um, emotionally, mentally, physically? So. That's the behavioral truth that that partner can see, not just what's shared in the document, but how is the disclosing party um, approaching the the session itself? Are they? Do we have to push the session back because they they didn't do they didn't meet the deadlines? That's truth too. Willingness to go through it. Are they are they um, pushing back? Are they resisting? Are they you know getting defensive and reactive? Those things are, share information too. That's great. So. Talk to me too. I mean, you guys are, like you said, you have a lot of resources that turned into a workbook. What maybe was your hope for your workbook or what did you think you were offering in a way that maybe others haven't? Do you want to answer that, Janice? Yeah, I'll, I'll start it out and then you can kind of join in and, and clean it up for me. <laughs> Part of it is just a really basic understanding of what the process looks like. There's really not, I, I know as, as therapists, we all have little pockets of pieces, but you know, what I tend to see in practice is a lot of either mystery or misconception about what the process is and what it looks like, depending on who you sat by in a, in a 12-step group. I do intensive, so I have people who come to me from like all over the country, and it's clear that they're like different standards of all from you know, disclosures that look only one way to like areas of the country where there are no disclosures happening. So we, we really wanted for whoever is, if anybody using these workbooks to be demystified, we wanted them to know that, that, that one size doesn't fit all and that, that there are a lot of choice points in the process. And so for, particularly for partners who, you know, feel when betrayal happens, like choices were made that affected them without their input or consent. And so part of my trauma training has always been that good trauma healing has to include choice wherever you can, where it can be. So we include a lot of choice points around the disclosure process. So really and truly the couple can design what meets their needs. And we do that with lots of informed consent about the pros and cons of, of any given choice. What I wanted for partners is for them to understand both 
the ways that perhaps they can better get the information that they need in order to heal, um, how they can figure out what their own needs are around that. I wanted them to be better prepared for the process. For example, one of the big discussion points that Dan and I had in, in creating the workbooks is around the use of polygraphs, which, you know, I wanted to talk about that. Oh. Would you like <laughs> Everyone wants to talk about the polygraph. <laughs> Would you like for me to hold that for later or shall I, I kind of go, go on with that? Um, were you about done with what you were talking about or are we ready to move into polygraph? I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm closing up on that okay. piece, but because that part of it is, is what I wanted is for partners to be prepared for the possibilities of what could happen and to have really kind of figured out how they're going to cope with that in ways that at least less damage. You know, I live in a part of the country where sometimes we have pretty major storms. And when I know a storm's coming, you know, we're, 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 in, the, we're in the store getting the supplies to, to shore us up if, uh, if we have to hunker down for quite a while. I wanted partners to feel like they had done enough planning so that they, they navigate that better. And including things, choices around the polygraph, whether to use it or not to use it, and if so, when. Uh-huh. And then the other piece, like, and again, we use this, like uh, the data from the surveys that we created along this, to be prepared that if you're using a polygraph, you have, your coping plan has to start, in, in my experience, 24 to 72 hours before the polygraph happens, because there's quite often what it does is it generates a trickle of information. And partners, you know, they know to be prepared for the disclosure itself, but they don't necessarily need, know that they actually have to prepare to handle the, you know, what they want to do with that process when it comes up and it's generated by a, a polygraph. Mm-hmm. Can I just say before we move into polygraphs, just one, one more thing. There are a number of resources on disclosure out there and there's some really wonderful resources already. Um, so we, our goal wasn't to reinvent the wheel. I think, yeah. you know, there's, there's resources for clinicians, you know, some really good stuff out there already. What we wanted to do was walk through, yeah, a step-by-step comprehensive guide to the to the journey. So that includes what the heck is disclosure? Is it right for me? What are the benefits and the risks? We also included, like Janice mentioned, with survey data. So we we asked people anonymously, you know, that were willing to share their experiences, um, whether that was you know the good, the bad, the ugly. And we wrote some of those things up um, that people had their experiences with disclosure. Um, so to providing some support along the way. That's the first third of the workbook really is what is disclosure? Is it right for me? How does it fit uh, in my, my journey? The second third is really we wanted to have a, a whole how do we prepare for this this thing? Uh-huh. Um, and then the, the, the next, the final piece is, okay, now that, that I've done it, now what? Which there's a lot of the aftermath. So the empathy journey from, from the disclosing party's side now moving from his or her story. So the disclosure is really um, the disclosing party sharing their their truth, their story, and now afterwards it's a grief journey for the couple. So moving from the disclosing party's story and disclosure to now really empathy for the impact that this is having on the partner. So and then from the partner's side to be able to, to uh, express that impact through an impact statement, impact letter. So that's that's and kind of we, we wanted to. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, what are the, in that first part, like, is disclosure right for me? Are there contraindicators of a disclosure? Sure. Yeah. And what, if somebody concludes that it's not for them, like, what are those reasons? Well, an example I would have is, is there's a little checklist flowchart that you can take yourself through. And for, on the partner's perspective, if, if you're three months into recovery 
and you not only you not only want full uh, you know all the information but you want complete validation and understanding and empathy you know that's going to affect the timeline not necessarily whether you do a disclosure but it but that's going to affect the timeline of when it gets done and so part of that is like more realistic expectations about the disclosure process okay we have some some caveats not a not a um, yes, no, you should or shouldn't, but some caveats to think about if, um, if you're in the divorce process or if the relationship has, has ended, we have some, some sort of unique situations that we, we don't make the decision for the reader, but we, we give you a lot of information about what might be the downside of, of you know, continuing with a disclosure or doing it rapidly, um, depending on the, your unique circumstances. I would say, I mean, these may be super, super obvious, but the I'm thinking of a couple major contraindications. One is if the disclosing party isn't willing to be fully truthful and honest about it. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer obvious, but that happens. And I've had some situations where I've backed, I personally backed out of a disclosure because I felt like the person I was preparing wasn't, was going to share some of the information, but wasn't going to share all of it. And I can't be a part of that. You know, especially if the partner thinks that they're getting everything. So to me, that's that's huge. Um, also, there may be situations where the disclosing party actually does want to share, but the partner says, I don't want it. I, it's not really a contraindicator, but well, I guess it is because at that case, and I've had a number of times, well, probably less than a handful, but where I've been preparing the disclosing party and they, uh, at some point, the partner says, I don't want this anymore. I don't want it. Um, it's rare, but it does happen. And I'm not going to push anyone to, that's a choice that, that the partner can always make. So I think there's situations around, let's say, medical situations, sometimes like pregnancy. Uh, we have that come up every now and then, let's say a partner is pregnant. What's the greater damage or the greater good that can happen with a disclosure and when we do it? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think of some things like that, but, you know, access to trained professionals, you know, you look at what's the, the greater harm or good, you know, is this going to, do I have fears or concerns at this information? It's a, it's sensitive information. Um, like Jenna said, if there's a, if divorce is on the table, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't do a disclosure, but it just, it triggers a number of other questions and what's the point, what's the purpose of it and how do we, we manage the safety and security uh, of this. So. Well, and I would say a, a, a piece as a partner advocate is, is one of the things that we include in the, you know, the, the needs assessment for the partner is whether or not, if the other side is open to it, she wants her guide to have an advanced look at the disclosure and perhaps input about where it meets or doesn't meet the specs. For example, if she said, I absolutely don't want an apology. And, you know, I read the document a week before and there, there's an apology. Or if there are obvious blame shifting, if... Can I ask, sorry, to, and Janice, I'm curious on the apology one. Can you give a reason why? Because I think sometimes that, that seems, that seems um, I, know, I know exactly what you're meaning, but I think some people might be confused. Why wouldn't you want an apology in something like this? Uh, why would she or would she not? Why would she not? Well, be, because it may not be sincere. Or it may be actually based on the um, disclosing party's needs to be to lead to like the next step is often asking for forgiveness. The words "I'm sorry" have been used many, many, many times and maybe seem sincere in the moment. You know, the subsequent behavior 
means that it, it wasn't really genuine or if it's been used to manipulate her or it pulls her into like an emotional response because, because quite often when there's a lot of them, there's already a lot of emotionality going on in a disclosure. Um, it can be a bit of a, when, when you add additional pieces, it can be a little bit of a shell game of getting through the disclosure and realizing major facts were either not shared or she can't remember. So there are a lot of, of reasons why an apology can be uh, problematic in the disclosure process. And what, what I hear more often is for partners will saying, I guess I want it if it's genuine. And really and truly, her guide nor the disclosures guide can look into the heart, mind, and soul of a human, be a human lie detector test. So generally speaking, um, most of my partners, when we really go through all the possible kind of ins and outs of that, most of them actually choose that they don't want that. And if they've been really clear about that in, in my preview, um, you know, it's sitting right there in the middle of the document. Um, now we've got a problem because we've got her, her wishes being disrespected in the disclosure document. For me, it's, as a therapist, it's really nice that in part of the preparation work is all I have to do is go back to look to see what did she want if this situation to happen? Because we've already discussed it. And in some partners, it's, it may be, I think that if we, this gets delayed, it will never happen. So I want to go forward. I would want to go forward with that. And for other partners, it might be, you know, I would like for Janice, I would like for you to halt the process. Uh, you know, um, respectfully ask the disclosure and the disclosure's guide to point at, you know, the incongruity um, in the document itself. And so uh, I don't like having to make that call and guesswork with a partner about something so important. So for me as a therapist, it's really helpful that we've already kind of gone over that in the needs assessment and I, I know how to respond to that. Yeah, those are great points. So I want to talk about I do want to get to the polygraph and then I also want to talk about like what, what happens after disclosure. So I don't know which one feels like the next one and then we'll wait for the other one. Or is there an order that feels more natural to talk about those two things? I'm not sure. I'm thinking uh, that the polygraph might, there might be a longer discussion. It (laughs) tends to generate a lot of interest. I, I can share what for the partner, what happens after like in the, the immediate aftermath of disclosure. And again, we've got lots of coping plans in there so that uh, the process becomes as structured as it can, but she's going to grieve. And the, the partner impact statement is part of the process of actually helping her to grieve, uh, come to terms to, in acceptance with, with what is and what wasn't. Um, and to begin to figure out some boundaries that she needs for herself going forward. And that may take, depending on the partner, that may be a very short process, or that actually might be a lengthy process. Mm -hmm. But I had to use one word to describe what happens for the partner afterward. And as a therapist, what I'm working with the partner on at that phase, it's grieving. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say from the other side, it's, how do I say it? it's to come to terms with the grieving at first because I hear a lot this notion that, okay, so I, I went through this whole thing, this disclosure process that was, was really difficult and yet I can see the value of it. Maybe I feel relieved afterwards. 
we're done now, right? You know, I gave I gave you what you wanted, and can't we go back to the way things were, or you know, whatever the new normal is going to be, and and to realize that no, there's you're never going back to the old relationship, but this is rebuilding a new relationship, mm-hmm. um, which I you know I don't it doesn't I don't mean this in a hokey way. I really do think it can be more beautiful than the old one. It's definitely through grief though, and it has mm-hmm. to you have to walk with your partner through grief for anyone that's considering it uh knowing that if as you walk through this grief journey with your partner you you help not only your partner heal but you help your relationship heal and ultimately yourself heal so that's a foreign concept for uh, particularly men the men i work with they they don't quite get that they think if she's she's mad or if she's sad i'm bad and so we're in a we're, that means it's bad if she's not doing well so i often use this analogy like a surgery you know, disclosure is like a surgery. We're opening up an infected wound. You maybe could have lived with it, but you're not, you're not thriving. But after a surgery, you, you know, there's a recovery period. Um, times there's a short-term recovery and sometimes a long-term, depending on the nature of the surgery. So it often gets worse before it gets better, even with a surgery. And I, I think to be prepared for that with disclosure, that the feelings, the things that that are now, they may come to the surface from, for the partner. It could be um, your partner may be more angry. The emotions may be more, more volatile or more intensified for a season. So yeah. that's not on the wrong track to tend to understand that, that it does get worse before it gets better, but that's part of the, it's like releasing the toxins, releasing the pain. That's part of the journey of healing. And so I think the more that I see the, the addicts or the disclosing party being able to kind of hang in there with their partner, really develop empathy for for the for what their partner's gone through that ultimately helps their relationships heal so that's i see his job uh, to do um really rebuilding safety and trust uh and and to me i'm just going to say janice mentioned boundaries uh (laughs) this was an oversight there was an obvious oversight at the beginning that we it wasn't until a few months ago um where like i I realized i didn't say anything about boundaries from the addicts the disclosing party side about how to respond to boundaries and i thought that's a huge oversight (laughs) so boundaries are so important and i'll say why from it's a gift that the partner gives to the the addict to say if you do these things this will help me feel safer this will this will now um help rebuild trust if you're consistent with these things so it's a gift it's a roadmap toward safety the way i see it so being able to consistently follow those boundaries um if you you know not forgetting them not not hemming and hawing trying to understand of course what they are and, and if it's possible but i think it's such a gift that partners can give to to the addict uh, for how to how to rebuild and how to move forward. So those are a couple things that I see. For the addict having some internal boundaries, right? So that as she is going through this grief process, that he doesn't tip into shame and think I shouldn't have done this. This I I didn't want to tell the whole truth, right? This is rejection. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay. So we, on our professional listserv, we just had like a really robust discussion about polygraphs, which comes up every so often on the listserv, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I paid attention to that and was reading with interest. But let's talk about polygraphs. Their role, maybe why a couple would just choose not to have them, their limit in, in a polygraph. I'll start with this, Janice, if you want to, you, you've... You can obviously jump in. We wanted to make sure, so that was something we obviously had to address. I personally have seen the benefit of, of using the, the polygraph in my practice. You know, and I, and I will say when I first started doing this work, I thought, wow, when people started using that term, I was like, whoa, this is 
this is kind of, are we kidding? A polygraph, you know? And I just thought it was so extreme to be, to be perfectly honest. But the more I started seeing the, the benefit of it, I mean, it's essentially a third party, you know, stamp that says that the, to the best of, of our, our abilities, of our knowledge, that this disclosure is, is true and complete. So when you have years, sometimes decades of betrayal, you know, deception, lies, betrayal, you, you end up, trust obviously gets eroded. So to try and say, well, we should just start trusting relationally right after a disclosure, that feels a little bit naive. I mean, yes, ultimately that's the goal is maybe to not rely on something external, but, but it's a, it's a validation. It's a verification of, of what's included in the disclosure. So I've seen the benefit of using it. Um, and I just wanted to, to say, and maybe Janice, you could talk more about the, the idea of a fidelity polygraph versus a um, forensic or criminal polygraph. But I think that's a key point. We're not talking about a criminal forensic polygraph here. We're talking about a fidelity polygraph. And I think that's that's key. It's not trying to, it's not what you see on TV of, you know, this interrogation where isn't it true on this date that such and such happened and trying to, I knew you were lying and trying to do this kind of a thing. It's it's really to, to validate and verify the facts and the truth that's being shared. Yeah, I, mean, would you the, I was going to say okay. several on the email thread talked about how they see the polygrapher as a team member, right? And this is somebody who works kind of with infidelity polygraphs. And so it's not this adversarial setup. Yeah, I, in my, my experience, um, so I'm not a part of, I, I come in after the, the polygraph is over. It's usually the polygraph examiner and then the, um, you know, the, the addict or the disclosing party is, it goes through the polygraph and I'll come in and typically afterwards, again, assuming they pass, um, th they're laughing together. The guy that's just finished the polygraph and the polygraph examiner. So I always have this joke, like what's happening in here, you know, and, and it's not about, it's funny. It's, it's that it's helpful to, to make sure that this isn't a shaming thing. It's not, it's trying to see someone as a human being. It's not, again, it's not trying to say you're so defective that we have to use this technique. It's that you're a human being and we're, we're trying to, you're trying to honor your partner and your relationship by saying whatever it takes, whatever it takes so that you can begin to trust um, and that you can understand, you know, get some sense of safety and honesty again, whatever it takes, I'll do. Mm -hmm. That's what I've seen. I don't know if you'd say, what do you say about that, Janice? Yeah, that was the, that was the first thing that came to my mind when the question came out is that, you know, a fidelity polygraph is, is, uh, has a different intent and purpose and a different sort of flow to it than, say, a criminal polygraph. In addition to the surveys that Dan, disclosure surveys that Dan and I created to sort of have some input from people who've been through the process themselves, you know, I also monitor the surveys for APSATs. And really some interesting write-ins have come in around the, the, the polygraph process. And, and by the way, in both the AppSat surveys and in Dan's and I survey of just people who've gone through disclosure, all in all, the polygraph was considered a helpful process. But the write-ins about the times that it wasn't, generally, as per my recollection, tended to talk about we found somebody off the internet they didn't know how to distinguish between a fidelity polygraph or a criminal polygraph. Um, you know, the polygraph examiner that Dan and I consulted about the material that we had in the book, she actually put in a, a plea that there's a piece that we include, which is how important it is in a disclosure fidelity polygraph that the examiner work really closely with the therapeutic team, uh, with the guides themselves. 
So it's a very, it's actually, unfortunately, I think the biggest dilemma is people who have that type of experience is a pretty small niche, it's a growing need for us. But I find it to be, as with everything, we included it in the workbook as a choice point. What I find for partners, as long as they really can accept it is one tool, um, I, I think it can be a really helpful process, particularly if the disclosure is, the discloser is, is maybe open to some subsequent polygraphs down the road. And it's helpful in the post-disclosure polygraphs, I think are really helpful for the partner in maybe taking some of those, those ang- the fears and the questions that come up maybe when triggered or that's really generated by anxiety. You know, I, I have my partners have like a, um, you know, a question journal and they put the question, they go write the question down in the journal. And, and I think it really helps them to like externalize it so they're not carrying around like the anxiety of, of the question themselves. Um, when it's time for the polygraph, they go back and they kind of go through their list. And usually the vast majority of them, they don't remember having written. It's the process of helping them distinguish which ones were based on just a fear in the moment versus which ones, this one has been a theme. It's come up multiple mm-hmm. This might be my intuition, kind of tell me something. And what I find is overall it helps partners begin to recalibrate their intuition. And the dilemma for partners without the polygraph is that they're going through a disclosure because their spouse has lied to them, mm-hmm. perhaps repeatedly. And if, we, if we're only relying like just on the words, that's a bit of the same process that, that happened you know, before the disclosure. So I think the, the polygraph process can really, I, I think it can help as an, a one component of a tool to be able to verify some of the information that's being shared. But I would say on a different note, the polygraph situation was maybe, for me at least, one of the biggest changes that I had to do to my thinking about how to work with polygraphs um, in the disclosure process. Because I live in a part of the country, for, for, for whatever reason, most of my partners want the polygraph after the disclosure. Dan typically does, does them before. Oh, interesting. I would have, yeah. I would have assumed afterwards, but okay. Yeah, well, and, and the flow of preparation for a polygraph really gets affected depending, and the flow of getting the, because that means that the d- disclosure document has to be done before, um, you know, before they can have the, the, the pre-disclosure polygraph. And all of a sudden, there's a lot more kind of emphasis on the partner getting her stuff, her, her needs assessment done, the partner getting the questions to them. And, you know, it's, it, it's a very different kind of pacing than what I was used to. And we're doing a workbook where we're given choice. It can go in either place, depending on the needs of the, the people involved. And so it really kind of changed some thing, thinking. It really challenged me to think about the process and the pacing of the preparation for the partner and um, how to build in that information. Um, I, I don't know what that experience was like for you, Dan, because like you did it was a little surprising to you when I said, no, they always choose to do it afterward. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it's just the difference between Los Angeles and Texas, but most people, most clinicians I know in Los Angeles, we tend to do them pre-disclo- uh, pre-disclosure polygraphs. So that's just been the established thing here. 
but what was helpful too, and, and there, there's benefits and risks either way. And I've had, I've had some people decide, well, I'm going to do both. <laughs> they maximize the benefits. But benefits of a pre-disclosure polygraph is if the disclosing party does not pass the polygraph, then you save the trauma of the partner having to go through the whole, the whole disclosure. So they, they actually, it gives another major choice point. Do I want to do this or not? Um, versus if, if you do it after the, the disclosure and the, the person doesn't pass, does it cause the, the whole disclosure to go to be questioned? So that's one of the benefits. The risks, of course, is what Janice said, is it, it does mean that you have to have a lot established, if not the whole, the whole disclosure document ahead of time, which does not give, you know, you're asking the partner to ask questions that maybe they don't even know what I'm supposed to be asking, but, you know, how do I know what questions to ask until I know what the information is? So there's some things that there's uh, the drawback of a predisclosure polygraph. What was helpful in, in talking to Janice was I, I'm, I'm more open. I don't have a clear-cut answer, which is better. I just want to give – now I have more informed uh, ways to talk about this and give choice. So that was something that I, I appreciated in, in learning more from Janice. And how do we put this into, into kind of a preparation journey, you know, uh, of what the benefits and risks are and what's going to work best for, for individuals. So I, I've, I learned about that, but I, I recognize it, it. This is a, you use the word robust. Uh, this is always a robust discussion. Um, it brings up a lot of feelings. I'm, and I can imagine, you know, people out there have been uh, potentially harmed by the, the, the process. You know, it hasn't been done in a safe way or it's been dehumanizing in the, the, the process. So, I mean, it's a, it's a loaded conversation and I, I don't mandate them. I, I think I, I've seen the value of them, even from the, the addict or the disclosing party. For example, one major benefit of a polygraph is, especially if you're doing a disclosure earlier on, there, it's possible we know that the addicts tend to compartmentalize facts. The, you know, there's certain things that they don't remember. Um, mm -hmm. And in the fog of addiction, it's not until you get into recovery. And that can take months before you start really getting your brain back. But in that process, if you're doing a disclosure early on, it's possible you'll remember things, uh, acting out information, some major details that you may uncover or, as we're using the term, excavate, uh, you may excavate later. So what happens now that I find more information out, I just remembered something else that I did and I went through a disclosure. So that's a dilemma. What I found for, for the addict is if you've gone through a polygraph and you remember more information later, um, that it's more likely that your partner is going to say, oh, it's yes, that's remembered versus intentionally withheld. So that's, that's a big benefit of going through this is, you know, it's possible you'll uncover some things later. Um, and, and that you've got now, it kind of solidifies the foundation of truth through the disclosure. So I'm, I'm a proponent of it, but, but I've also been in situations where sometimes partners will say, I want the poly. And then a couple of days before the disclosure, they're like, okay, the fact that he was willing to do it is, gives me some, some sense of security. And I don't, I'm choosing not to do it anymore. And that's rarer, but it's happened where the willingness, the willingness to go through a polygraph says, says a lot versus someone who's like, you know, they'll, the people that, that research online and say the percent passing rate and that, you know, and they'll, that's where they focus their energy on is, well, these aren't perfect tools and things like that. What is, what's the behavioral truth that gets shared? Yes, we do need to look at false positives and false negatives. Those do happen. They can happen. But again, I think what Janice said, this is a tool. It's not the tool. So, and, and we give choice. I think choice is important. Yeah. Okay, so we're almost at the hour. Anything that you guys can think of? We've covered so many things. I think this has been such a robust discussion. Um, but anything that we haven't covered that you would want to add? I think maybe 
one, one piece in terms of the intent of the works books is we tried to like design it as a step-by-step -step. Mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily that everybody has to do every step, but we tried to design it so that there's a good preparation, whether you're kind of doing a disclosure fairly early in recovery versus if you're trying, if you're doing them much later in recovery, it's a little bit harder to kind of, I think the flow of the partner stuff felt like it was a little bit harder in that stance, but it's really the belief that one size doesn't fit all and that um, the couple going through the disclosure process, you know, can actually be coming to terms on some choice points about how you design it and how you handle the aftermath can actually be some first steps in the early beginning to repair some trust. Yeah, which I love because I, I find when I'm doing a disclosure with a couple, oftentimes the partner doesn't know what options are available, right? When you're talking to them about how they would like it, they're like, I don't know, what's the options, right? And so I think that's so great to walk them through that and give them examples or you might want to do this or maybe not, maybe it looks like this, that then they get to make that choice. I guess for me, I was thinking about this as Janice was, was sharing that my plea would be for the guides, for the clinicians or coaches or clergy or whoever is the one that's facilitating the disclosure. We hear over and over again, I've, I hear this in my practice, we got this information through the surveys. This can go really badly. And a lot of times it, it, the process can go badly because we as the guides make it go badly because mm -hmm. we can't agree on things. So my plea is that we set aside some pride, you know, clinical pride or whatever it would be that we really try to, to feel and hear where our clients are. And there isn't one way that this has to go down. Um, it, what's more important, I think, is that we're all on the same page with, with what's going to be, be most beneficial to the couple that's in front of us mm -hmm. if we're working as a team you know, with, with two people um, in the disclosure. Because I've just seen over and over again the damage that can happen is because uh, we as the, the professionals can't agree and then you know, people get in argue, arguments in the disclosure or it, it just becomes a power struggle or something. So that's my big plea is that we really try to hear where our clients are and what they're needing. Of course, we give guidance and make it as safe as possible. You know, we use our, our clinical judgment and, and, but we, that we have some humility to respect the people that we're working with. And that to me in this, this journey working with Janice was so helpful because we, why it took us, one reason it took us so long was because we had to talk through so many issues and, and come, you know, we didn't agree on everything and that's fine, mm -hmm. but that's okay. And again, that's okay. You're, you're going to have people that don't, they do things differently. They don't see things totally eye to eye, but it's the, the journey of how do we have these conversations together and communicate about this stuff. And then we yeah, can ultimately be the best well. for our clients. So that's what I would say. Okay. So we've been talking about this workbook. What's the name of the workbook? Well, we've got disclosing parties. One is full disclosure how to share the truth after sexual betrayal. So that's the full complete manual. Okay. Um, that's from the disclosing party. And then, for the, and then the, the full version of the partner's manuals, it will, will be out shortly. It's not currently on the market. Um, that is full disclosure, seeking truth after sexual okay. betrayal. And those are both available what, on disclosurehope.com or how do people access those? Yeah, you can go disclosurehope.com or you can go on Amazon and get them. There is a condensed version of the partner book right now about that that gives some of the major choice points mm. um, and well some preparation, but it's it's 
you know, Janice has done a ton more work than what's in that book. Um, it's a great, great resource to start with, you know, to, to prep for the disclosure. So and when will more full one be out? Do we have an idea? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, uh, well, uh, you know, it's, it's just about ready to like go to like for the layout and, and, Dan, you can do a better guess on that. This is a this is a to holy, totally new world for me. It's written and it's um, should be kind of in that final production very shortly. So I'm hoping for before the summer's over. Oh, nice. Okay, crossing. Oh, yeah. Okay, and if people want to get a hold of you again, how do they contact you? Uh, for me, you can go to drjaniscoddle.com or or McKinneyCounselingAndRecovery.com and contact me from there. Okay. And Dan? And for me, um, banyantherapy.com. So B-A-N-Y-A-N therapy.com. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for your insight. This has been totally an easy interview for me. I just sat back and listened to the two of you. <laughs> um, so I'm so looking forward to using this book with couples. I think there's so many great things that this workbook offers. Thank you for all of your hours and energy put into providing this resource. Well, thanks, Thank Jackie. You, Jackie. Thanks, yeah, thanks for your time and for um, your willingness and, and leadership in this podcast. Appreciate it. All right. Good to talk to both of you. I want to remind you at the end of this episode that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The pro, the perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.